That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, we'll start the show here in just a second, but here's a political fun fact for you. The 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign started at the dinner table of radio legend Bill Press. Bill has been one of the leading progressive voices in the country, so I'm glad he's still out there on the left, stronger than ever. Right now, he's using that progressive voice in the Bill Press podcast. The Bill Press pod is up twice a week, an in-depth interview with a major newsmaker on Tuesday, plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters, Dig deep on the latest craziness from the GOP, the massive voter suppression bills in the states, and the Democrats' fight to keep control of Congress in 2022. So I encourage you to join me in subscribing to the Bill Press pod. It's a must-listen for all progressives. To sign up, just go to wherever you get your podcasts, search for the Bill Press pod, click on subscribe, and then tell your friends to do the same. Take it from me, I follow the Bill Press pod, and you should too. And now, let the cartoons begin. Recorded live in the USA, covering the whole wide world world this is the bob seska show presented by bubblegenius.com From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, April 14, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is the great Diana Butler-Bass. You might know Diana as a regular on the John Fuglesang Show on Sirius XM, but she's also a speaker, scholar, and authority on American religion and culture. She's the author of 11 books, including her latest called Freeing Jesus, a bold exploration beyond the narrow confines surrounding the image of Jesus. Ultimately, it's an invitation to leave the Jesus Wars behind and rediscover him in entirely new ways as a teacher rather than as a wrathful savior. Link in the description under this show at bobseska.com. Meantime, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe to our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. Okay, let's talk about Jesus with Diana Butler-Bass. Hello, this is Diana. Diana, it's Bob Seska. How are you? Hi, Bob. It's great to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. It's been so long. We met uh, like a couple of years ago. We were both on the John Fuglesang show at the SiriusXM studios there. And in fact, when we met, I think I said, you have to come on my show. And then like two years later, <laughs> we're finally doing it. Well, you know, I, I remember that conversation really well. I think we were all in the depths of despair about Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, see, that's and the I'm thing. I'm glad we waited two years, you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, see, that was the thing about Donald Trump is he was constantly sucking all the air out of the room. He made himself the number one story, the number one thing that everyone was focused on. 
And so you, there was no ability to focus on anything else at the same time. It was just Trump 24-7. Trump, Trump, Trump. But I'm so glad that he's gone and I, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is we can finally talk. We can finally sit here and talk and not have to you know, preoccupy the entire conversation about whatever Trump said this morning. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, it, it was funny part of the, the energy of mm-hmm. my last year in particular was writing the book. Uh, yeah. that I know we're going to chat, chat about today. Oh, yes. And it, it, occasionally it felt very strange, you know, to be locked in my office, um, even before the pandemic, mm. writing a book about Jesus, of all things. And I thought, you know, what in the world has this got to do with any of this nuttiness that's in the news? And yet it, it, it does to the moment and it yeah. surprises me <laughs> that it does yeah and and while you're writing the book i mean there were things that happened that certainly looped uh christianity into the whole uh trump thing which was specifically when he went over to the uh the church across the way from the white house and held up that bible in front of it and just kind of used the bible as a prop as a cynical means to appeal to a certain voting demographic which is entirely what it was all about i mean he was just exploiting it. Uh, and so as you're writing the book and you're seeing this come down, you're seeing the photos and the video of them tear gassing protesters and ending up in front of that church. What goes through your mind as you're seeing these two things? You're seeing your text on the page and then you're seeing Donald Trump just exploiting religion for his own ridiculous purposes. The main thing was I kept saying over and over and over to myself, you know, because, hey, pandemic lockdown. Mm-hmm. But um, it was that's not my experience of Jesus. Yeah. And I found myself getting just so angry. Mm-hmm. And, and with that episode in particular, um, I do also happen to be um, an Episcopalian. And that's the denomination of wh- whose church yeah. uh, Trump walked across the street from the White House, and he stood on the steps of that Episcopal church mm-hmm. um, behind the White House. Yeah. And so I was just kind of upset all the way around you know it was it was my denomination it was my people he did it without anybody's permission and of course even more importantly i think for christians uh, so many of us um have been living in this universe where we're watching this sort of very weird christianity play itself out on television Mm -hmm. and it doesn't resemble what we know to be of 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 jesus in particular because You know, Jesus is at the heart of it all for us. Right. So, so it's, it was really hard. And yeah. I, I threw a lot of things at televisions over the last <laughs> couple years. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that because you seem like a very enlightened person uh, who, you know, this is almost commonplace now where you see people with bad intent exploiting religion for some other purpose beyond exalting in in Jesus and the Holy Trinity. And so it's got to be, oh, well, here we go again. They're exploiting Jesus again. They're they're doing this again. Oh, there goes Donald Trump doing it again, pretending, having the hands being laid upon him and all of that uh, for very, very cynical purposes. Is there part of you that's like, yeah, well, that's that's the way it goes. That's how these people do it, and uh, there's nothing really I can do about it. Or do you feel like you want to go and say to them, like, would you p- please stop, stop doing, stop doing this? <laughs> well, I I definitely don't want to be quiet and just mm-hmm. give them uh, the ground of Christianity or of Jesus himself. Yeah, um, you know, I 
I am not, I, I think that I'm not the kind of person who wants to stand up in public and have a debate, right. you know, with, with somebody from this point of view, because I just don't know how far that direct sort of face-to-face thing goes. But I definitely am also not the sort of person who's going to be silent in public. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that those of us who see these things entirely differently and who understand that every religion can be used for ill or it can be used for good. Yeah. Um, the, those of us who get that deeply and have benefited in, in our faith traditions, um, that we know that faith has called us to serve our neighbors, to care for the poor, uh, to make sure that hungry people are fed, to be with the sick, to mm-hmm. visit prisoners, all those kinds of things, is that we have to be out there and saying it over yeah. and over these days, yeah. is that religion isn't just bad, uh, but it is also uh, very life-giving right. and creates all of these you know, can, can create all these enormously positive social benefits. Yeah. And of course, religion isn't the only thing that does that. But for many people, myself included, it is one thing that has helped me grow um, mm-hmm. in that kind of social compassion. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, and I want to talk about that a little bit more later in our conversation. But uh, being raised Catholic, one of the things that I learned a lot about was that your participation was guided by things like social justice and and deeds, actions, uh, caring for the homeless. I mean, that was a big component of my Catholicism early on, is going out and doing things to help other people. And uh, it seems like that is not really part of the equation for so many people in this country. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it becomes not part of the equation, and people just sort of drift away or make other choices. And I am, I, I think that that's perfectly wonderful and acceptable, you know, because we all have our own stories, mm-hmm. and and all of our spiritual stories are worthwhile. But where it gets really dicey is when people take the stuff of that religion, and then they turn it towards the opposite of what that religion would be about. And so I think my very worst day um, in the process of writing this book was in the the final stages of editing, right after Christmas, Mm -hmm. and and January 6th happened, the insurrection in the Capitol. Oh, yeah. And I can remember, you know, we, we live on I guess either side of DC. I live in Northern Virginia. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I'm down, down here in Virginia. I'm watching basically the local news on television. And there was a shot where they panned over the insurrectionist and there was the noose that um, had been set up to, I guess, lynch Mike Pence. Yeah. And then sort of off to the left of that news, there was some guy who was holding this giant sign that said, Jesus saves. <laughs> God, yeah. And, and so here I am sitting with this manuscript about Jesus being all about love and compassion and enlarging my sense of the world and how, you know, uh, God calls us into service to others. And, and there's this guy standing next to a noose. <laughs> <laughs> on television, like 10 miles away from my house, yeah, yeah. you know, say, uh, basically saying that Jesus called them to do this awful thing. Mm-hmm. And that's when it goes, I mean, you've really gone over 
over the line. So yeah. far there, there's, you know, you can almost not even see the line behind you anymore. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't mean that a person is just you know, left religion because it doesn't work for them. And they found a sort of another way to be a decent human being. But it means that they are actively using religion to harm others. Yeah, yeah. And those are distinctions I think we sometimes forget to make. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the quotes uh, you use in, in your book, Freeing Jesus, is from Anne Lamott, who said, it is just mortifying to be a Christian except for the Jesus part. When, and when I was growing up Catholic, as I said, I felt the exact same way. There was a lot of interpretive nonsense being shoved in our faces, but not a lot about the core teachings of Jesus. Uh, why is that? I mean, why is there this dichotomy where the practice of being a Christian is too often divorced from Jesus himself? In fact, our, mentioning John saying again, he's a great ambassador for uh, the teachings of Jesus. And I don't think he even realizes it. I don't think he knows that he is someone who is doing so much for the reputation of Jesus in this context. And I get the sense that you're cut from the same cloth. <laughs> I often think of John as a really good evangelist, and I, I don't think I ever <laughs> want to tell, it, tell him that to his face. <laughs> I'll mention I'm talking to him tonight. I'll mention it to him tonight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, you know, oh my gosh. Now you'll have to apologize for me. But, uh, but yes, I think John's great at this. And I love your question because, um, as I m- mentioned a moment ago, I, I've gone to Episcopal churches. I guess you can say I, I have been Episcopalian for about 30 years now. So it's been most of my adult life. And, uh, we have, I think, a very kind of similar issue uh, to Catholics. You know, the Episcopal churches looks a lot like the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. You sort of stumble into one. A friend of mine used to say, yeah, Episcopal, Episcopal. That's like Catholic, but one third less guilt. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, that's and guilt is a huge part about it. I, I'm sitting here mentioning Jesus, and I feel like, oh, should I even be saying this? Is this? Am I doing something wrong here? Oh, I gotta go to confession now. Yeah, so one third less guilt, Catholic yeah. light, you right? Know? Right. And so, so in certain ways, I think that's a tradition that I know really well, and other uh, of these sorts of very liturgical kind of high churches. Um, they emphasize the creeds, you know, they emphasize getting up every Sunday and saying, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that, that sort of doctrinal statement mm-hmm. about who, who God is and who Jesus is. And I look at that, that statement sometimes, which was written in the uh, fourth century. Um, and I think to myself, it's missing so much because it literally jumps from talking about God, the Father Almighty, who created heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. And then it talks about Jesus, and it literally talks about Jesus being born, being crucified on the cross, dying, and being raised. Yeah. it's like, oh, oh, wait a second, there's something missing. (laughs) Right. It's It's the worst obituary ever written in the history of obituaries, that's for sure. (laughs) I never thought of it like that, but that's perfect. Yeah. But there's nothing about what he said. Or what he did. There's no healing. There's no compassionate love. There's no calling of these poor, you know, uh, marginalized uh, disciples who were at the edges of culture, 
you know, oppressed by the Roman Empire. There's no calling them into community. There's no blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yep. And, and so I think if you go to church on Sunday, you know, churches put out, uh, you know, in the main part what they want to emphasize. And while there are many, 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 many brilliant sermons about all of those things, the only thing you say all week, or, or excuse me, every week, are those words about those the the, the shallow obituary words? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so that gets, that that's frustrating to me because it does it leaves so much out, mm-hmm. and really the stuff it leaves out is the stuff that makes a huge difference in the lives of regular regular people. I'll never forget uh, listening to a homily, and this is right around the time when I began to seriously question my Catholicism and my connection to organized religion. Uh, We were at, this was in uh, eighth grade, and I was going to Catholic school, and on Fridays we would go up the hill and go to church. Um, And I was sitting there listening to the homily one day, and (laughs) God bless him, our priest was trying to do a thing where he was saying, uh, did Jesus ever see trick-or-treating? I mean, that was the theme... (laughs) Of this particular homily. And I'm going, well, what kind of nonsense is this? My cynical, my, you know, interpretive brain is starting to go, ah, this doesn't compute. Why are we talking about whether Jesus saw trick-or-treating? What kind of <laughs> BS is this? And so that's when, that was one of the things that started me questioning as to, is this a, a valuable expenditure of time here? Is this, listening to whether Jesus had Halloween <laughs> In the ancient times and <laughs> Judea, or you know, the the life of Jesus is so rich with not only teaching but actual deeds, and th- there's so much to learn. Why are we wasting time on this nonsense? And you could actually apply that to some of the more dogmatic nonsense too, that gets extrapolated out of some of those teachings that kind of uh, misinterprets them. That's also kind of frustrating. Well, one of the problems I think with church is that they have spent just an enormous amount of time emphasizing a few things and forgetting the, the much, the much bigger picture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, one of the things that, I, I mean, I have a PhD in religious studies from Duke in the history of Christianity. So it's not like I don't know anything about this stuff, right. but um, here I am, I'm writing a book about Jesus and the, the approach I took was to explore these different images that we have for Jesus, mm-hmm. friend and teacher, savior, all these different things. And um, I was writing, you know, starting to write the savior chapter, which is a very dominant image of Jesus that you get in any, any church. Jesus is the savior. And um, I was doing research and discovered, and how would I not, how would I have never noticed this? Hmm. That in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that talk specifically about Jesus' life, Jesus is only called Savior twice. Hmm. And and he's called Teacher 90 times. Wow. Yeah, and I looked at that, and I thought, one, I never noticed it, and why would that be the case? And then, two, I understood why it was the case. It's because through my lifetime of experience being part of church, at church, um, every single time I go into a, a church service, the emphasis is on Jesus as Savior. 
And so I just assumed it was there. But it wasn't there. Hmm. Instead, it was 90 mentions of Jesus as teacher. Yeah. And attention then well wait a second uh the early church those people who wrote those four gospels they must have thought it was much more important to think about jesus as a teacher rather than savior it's fascinating diana first of all in your studies at duke did you ever come across any proof of jesus seeing trick-or-treating i was just <laughs> no, 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 i'm just kidding <laughs> Well, you mean, you mean he didn't celebrate St. Patrick's Day? What's wrong with him? Why does he? Why does Jesus hate America? Um, this is so stupid. Although I, I I do remember a really fun story that uh, took place probably about twenty five years ago. I was in a a church, and it was uh, late October, early uh, I guess it was early November, probably the first Sunday after November first, because that was All Saints celebration. And uh, the minister, the priest there, invited the little kids to come to church in costume and so the kids go up for the children's sermon and there's little princesses and you know uh superheroes and all kinds of things and there is meanwhile this one kid in the middle of the circle and he looks like um pig pen from charlie brown um he's got a sheet thrown over his head and it's got two kind of cockeyed eyes cut out of it. And the sheet's kind of dirty. And it's like, really? This is the costume that his parents sent to church in? A sheet? And so um, the priest went around the circle and he asked each kid, he goes, who are you? And I'm Cinderella. And then, uh, who are you? Spider-Man. And then he gets this little kid in the sheet and he says, who are you? And the kid says, I, sir. And the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Don't you recognize me? That's it. That makes so much sense. And also, man, that is ballsy. That is a that is a brave move. That's a, that's some parents with a good sense of humor right there. Uh, wait, I want to go back to the uh, same. Wait, wait, that's my one Halloween story. Oh of, God! Of, of church. <laughs> amazing, amazing. See, there's always a connection. Uh, but going back to the Savior versus Teacher thing. Let me see if this makes sense. Is, is there something that's inherently selfish about framing Jesus as a savior? Like you have to praise Jesus. You have to uh, attend church in order to be saved. It becomes something about your personal reward. You know, um, Pat Oswalt calls it sky cake, your personal sky cake. And that's why we have to make sure we emphasize that Jesus is a savior. Because remember, if you don't listen to him, you're not going to get your sky cake. And is that maybe why there was the emphasis more on savior rather than teacher to kind of, you know, convince people to go along with this dogma from the perspective of, well, if you don't listen, you're not going to be saved. Is that kind of maybe the interpretation there? Well, I, I, I think it is, you know, and uh, the cynical me, um, you know, I, I can be both a Diana who sits in church and laughs at the little kids in costume and <laughs> you know, can enjoy, enjoy that kind of experience yeah. of being in community. But the, the cynical me says, you know, it's much easier to run an institution on a set of ideas like, you know, Savior and Lord, um, if you're a religion, because then people have to come to you in order to get the product. Yeah. Um, You know, it's so the cynical piece is, you know, if Jesus is a a teacher who says, follow me out into the world, well, that means that you you can go to church, you can kind of bypass church sometimes, but that the action is in what 
the people of God are doing in the world and yeah. how you're imitating Jesus. Exactly. Um, but if you're selling the idea of Jesus as Savior, people have to come to church to get that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and it depends on, you know, if you're a Catholic, you come to church to get that through consecrated bread and wine in mm-hmm. the Mass. And if you're a Baptist, you come to church to get that through the revival meeting, um, you know. And so so all sort of institutional churches uh, have figured out ways of putting, you know, fences, really, yeah. around the idea of Jesus as Savior so that people are dependent upon something that the institution does for them yeah. to have access to Jesus as Savior. Mm-hmm. So that that strikes me as part of the institutional sort of life of the of Christianity, and that's one of the things that people are rejecting so much right now too. Yeah, you know. So um, I find I find it pretty troubling, and it's, it's, I think it's a good thing that you sort of go right there, you know, mm-hmm. because the church can control Jesus the Savior. The church cannot control Jesus the Teacher. God, that's such a great point. Um, so, so often I see this interpretation. What's in it for me? I mean, I have Catholic friends who have explained to me quite candidly that going to church for them is an insurance policy. Hey, you never know, so you right. might as well do it because just in case, just in case it's all real, <laughs> I want to have my ducks in a row. Well, that seems like a horrible way to justify what you're doing in this process of worship, in this process of developing your faith. It seems like uh, that, uh, as I said before, that selfish motivation rather than the selfless motivation. What can you do for others? Social justice. Uh, That's one of the things that I think really drew me away from uh, my faith and my Catholicism growing up. Well, you know, that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Because uh, Matthew 25, which is one of my favorite chapters in the in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. is uh, it's a, you know, a big old metaphorical vision, really, of Jesus teaching about the the last days. What's going to happen when we come to the end of our lives? And Jesus says, and and there will be the sheep on one side and the goats on the other side. And I'm going to say to everybody who's gathered there, um, did you um, feed feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and visit prisoners um, in in jail? Mm -hmm. And if you you did, welcome, welcome, welcome in. Yeah. Um, but everybody who doesn't do those things are going to be cast off. And so literally Matthew 25 in words that Jesus tells himself about this story about the end times, doesn't say heaven is for all of you people who went to mass every Sunday and all of you, um, heretics, infidels, and this over there in that corner, um, you're all going to hell. Right. Jesus doesn't do it that way. Nope. You know, Jesus literally does it on the basis of work. Mm-hmm. What you've done, and, and literally the verse is what you've done for the least of these. Yeah, yeah. What you've done for the least of my brethren, that's what's going to get you a reward in whatever the life after this life is. And so to set it up as a sort of insurance policy, you've bought bad insurance. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine it's not well received above. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, literally. I mean, I think that you know, God is in God's 
compassion. I, 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 I don't believe that anything will be excluded from the embrace of God's love in the mystery of whatever happens after we leave this place. Yeah. And so I'm what they call a universalist. And um, that's considered to be a heresy in many circles, but <laughs> oh well. Um, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 you know, I'm, I'm on board with that. But, you know, it just, it just is so sad to me that people would think that these particular kinds of go, going to a church building and doing these particular kinds of religious rituals, that that's the thing that really is going to save them in the end. Mm-hmm. Now, it might save some people. It might make some people way better than they otherwise would be so that they could go out and do good things uh, for their neighbors. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem like that's really the way it's described in Jesus' own words. Yeah, And yeah. so I have to kind of take that, you know, on balance. Which one of those would I lean towards? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to lean towards what Jesus says rather than uh, any kind of religious institution that's telling me I have to come there or I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, and the or I'm going to hell part of it. That was, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back for me personally. And I, I hate keeping, you know, relitigating why I'm no longer a religious person, but that was the thing. Or you're going to go to hell. If you masturbate, you're going to go to hell. If you don't use a condom, or if you use a condom, I say, boy, I'm getting yeah, it backwards. It, yeah, <laughs> totally getting it backwards. What's wrong with me? If That's you, right. You know what? Before we go any further, I, I want to know more about your book. W- what inspired you to write Freeing Jesus, and what carried you through that process? I was, I was really concerned about the way that um, Jesus is being presented or not presented mm-hmm. uh, in you know, our, our contemporary sort of cultural languages and yeah. conversations. And, and really, Jesus kind of gets hit from two directions right now. Um, one is the enormous number of people who have left religion behind. Um, and that constitutes in the United States a lot of people who used to be Christians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's people like you. I mean, you're describing this experience really pretty perfectly. Um, you know, just said, I've had it. You know, I've had it with being called a Christian. I don't want to, I, I don't want to have anything to do with the institutional church again. And yet, every single time I have a conversation with somebody who tells me that, there's kind of almost a little sort of apology that comes into the conversation where someone will say, but you know, I still really like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and I and I still consider myself a follower of Jesus. Yeah. And and that's interesting because it really does wind up about you know kind of the moral framework that um, gets set up for so many of us in church when we're little. You know, being kind to other people, you know, loving your neighbors yourself, all that kind of thing. And so I hear that from people like you who have that experience. But then the experience that m- most people don't know about is that within churches. There are so many people who are just basically holding on by their fingernails. Hmm. And they're saying things like, you know, oh, I, I, I love these traditions, or I might love the rituals, and I love Jesus. And then this comes in, but I don't know how to talk about Jesus in, to my uh, Muslim neighbors, or I don't know how to talk about Jesus you know, when I'm with other parents in the school group, because there are Jews and Buddhists in that group. And so what, what people who are still in churches are saying 
is that they don't understand how to live in a pluralistic world and not be able to, and they can't talk about their faith. They feel like they can't talk about their faith Mm -hmm. because their faith has been cast as being exclusive. So if you bring up Jesus um, in the minds of many people in, in, uh, I mean, certainly this would be the case in my neighborhood, um, in the minds of many people, as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus, it's like telling a, a Buddhist or a Jew or a Muslim that they're going to hell. Yeah. It's like people have equated Jesus so much with exclusion mm-hmm. in, in popular culture. And so poor Jesus gets caught both, both ways. Is that people who have left the church are like, yeah, I still really like Jesus, and I find Jesus compelling. Mm-hmm. And then you look on the other hand, and people who are within churches go, yeah, I really like Jesus, but boy, is this confounding. I don't know how to talk about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely the case. I see both of those examples, uh, yeah, writ large, so many people. So I wanted to go right into the middle of those questions and be, be myself um, and be confident and tell a story about Jesus that was, I think, unexpected and also has a quality to it where I do actually turn a lot of conventional doctrines kind of on their ears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that was, that was really the purpose of the book. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Diana here in just one second. But first, I have to thank all of our brand new subscribers on our Patreon page. We surpassed 20 new members at bobseskashow.com in just a few days. And now I'm going to be making at least one behind-the-scenes video for all of our patrons. So if you're just joining us for the months of April and May, whenever we reach the threshold of 20 new subscribers, I'll produce an all-new behind-the-scenes video exclusively for our Patreon members. And all that happens at bobseskashow.com. Again, you can sign up for $1 per month, $5 per month, $10 per month, or $15 per month. $5 a month is going to get you the post-mortem shows recorded after the end credits on our Tuesday and Thursday podcast. For $10 per month, you're going to get the post-mortem shows plus the subscription-only after party with me and Kimberly Johnson every Friday. And for $15 per month, you're going to get all of that Plus, we take out all the commercials just for you. That's bobseskashow.com, or just click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Thank you. The Bob Seska Show. It may be interpreted as heretical, but I think what you're doing is a wonderful thing because there are so many people who want to um, you know, know more about Jesus and who, uh, like me, respect the teachings of Jesus and acknowledge them and acknowledge how important they are in our moral lives. But if the same time we don't want to necessarily be caught up in all of the religious dogma and the structure that goes along with um you know being part of an organized religion that often ends up incorporating a lot of things that we don't like that that just doesn't seem to connect uh, and line up with the teachings of jesus so many contradictions uh for example and so this is incredibly important but it seems like what you're doing is you're freeing jesus from the trappings of and the negative ideas about organized religion. Is that, is that a fair interpretation? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I am. Okay. And, um, and all the while still being a person who is committed to church, mm-hmm. which is, I think a little bit of the twist on it, you know, because there are, I certainly have, uh, you know, dozens of friends who are atheist agnostics, post evangelicals, all ex Roman Catholics, all kinds of things. And there are some really good books that those people have written, you know, about letting go of church and, 
and yet still feeling like they were in effect faithful, you know, to who Jesus really is. But the the twist of my story is that I'm staying in conversation uh, with the traditions. While I'm turning those traditions a bit on their head, I'm I'm not completely cutting all uh, my ties. Yeah. And so there's this little piece of me, I don't know, my friends refer to me as the Don Quixote of (laughs) church. (laughs) <laughs> that there's this little piece of me that dreams of a of better uh, kinds of Christian communities yeah. that people will find a richer experience of who Jesus is and sort of less of the you must believe this and you must do that kind of religion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always saw a value in uh, participating uh, in Catholicism. There was something that was um, compelling, and to put it in a very simplistic way, there was something that was fun about going to Mass and seeing your friends and seeing their parents and seeing their brothers and sisters. And I mean, oftentimes I wouldn't want to go to church, but after I left, I felt a sense of satisfaction. And I can see your draw to wanting to continue to participate because there is something comforting about that community. I mean, there, there is some sort of way in which good uh, churches, well, frankly, even some fairly bad ones, um, manage to open windows of you know, sort of between the worlds, as it were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll be sitting in the pew, you're clearly, you know, in Washington, D.C. or wherever you're sitting, and yet there on Sunday morning, there'll be an organ that plays a piece of music that takes you to a completely different reality. Yeah. Or there'll be poetry read that was like... <gasps> I never thought of it that way before, or a sermon that challenge you, challenge you to see the world differently. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, there are the people who are in the pews with you. Um, and so all of those things are things that, that I uh, do find really compelling and, and quite beautiful. Yeah. And there's almost no other place that provides those things mm-hmm. um, several years ago. I was interviewing for a, di- a completely different project, uh, a number of young adults. And these were people who maybe hadn't grown up in churches, but now found themselves in church. And I was with a group of, of students in Cambridge, Mass. And we were talking about their religious experiences. And these, a number of these students had, had not grown up in particularly Christian homes, but they had started going to this prayer service that was offered at a monastery right there in Cambridge Square. And the, I, I, I just said, well, why, why this? Because mm-hmm. it's incredibly high church, the monks chanting in Latin with incense, you know? Wow, wow. And uh, yeah, out of all the things you think to yourself, why would a whole bunch of people from MIT and Harvard find this in any way appealing? And so I asked him the question, and this one guy looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, well, where else am I going to see people walking through clouds of smoke, wearing monastic robes, chanting in this ancient language? <laughs> yeah. I and mean... I thought, you know, he's right, you know, this is really the only place that does this, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and see, I feel gypped. I, I feel totally gypped, Diana, because I came into uh, Catholicism after Vatican II, so there was no more Latin. So I 
Never got to hear Latin being spoken out loud until I went to high school and had to study Latin for four years. But it would have been great uh, on some level to have experienced that big, ornate, pre-Vatican II uh, Catholic mass. You know, there's something about that. But there's something there that, you know, what it does is it opens up a window to a different way of seeing the world. You know, Mm, it's something that only can happen in very particular locations. And uh, this past Easter Sunday, I there's this tiny, really kind of very quirky Episcopal church right around the corner from my house here in the suburbs of Alexandria. And um, that's where I tend, that's where I tend to go to church when I'm in regular life and I'm not out on the road preaching somewhere on the weekend. And so on Easter Sunday, we had our first church service in more than a year and it was outside on the lawn. It was a beautiful day. And uh, everybody brought their own lawn chairs, and we all sat, you know, six feet apart, and people were wearing masks. And um, the priest, they had set up the, a table with the altar cloths, the linens, that said, Alleluia, you know, on them for Easter Sunday. And the priest is standing behind the table, and there's this beautiful, very large-scale wooden Celtic cross that stands outside on that lawn. And so that was right behind where she was standing, where the mm-hmm. priest was standing. And so she, you know, we listened to music. We didn't sing it. Although my daughter kept hitting me with her elbow saying, mom, you're not supposed to sing even behind your mask. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was whispering along the words in the hymns because they are such beautiful hymns. Yeah. And, um, and so it was, you know, it was the best we could do with church. The priest gets up to do what we call in the Episcopal church, the, the Eucharist or Catholics call it the mass. And she looks down at the elements. She has bread and wine sitting in front of her at the table. And uh, she started crying. And hmm. she looked out over us, sitting on this lawn, this beautiful day. And she said, you realize this is the first time we've been together for a meal in more than a year. Wow. Yeah. And when she said that, everybody, I mean, we all just got so choked up. And she, there were these, just these tears, you know, rolling down her cheek. And then she picked up the wine and she picked up the bread and she said these really ancient prayers over them. And she invited us to come forward one at a time, six feet apart, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and celebrate, you know, this amazing life after death. This, I mean, that's what is Easter about, except that. There's going to be life after death. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about the, you know, the 500,000 people who have died and the horrible thing we went through with Trump over the last four years. And they're just, just right now, just this April, you know, these, these tiny whispers mm-hmm. of an entirely different thing opening toward us. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I couldn't stop crying. You know, and that was really, I mean, where else, for me at least, where else would that that kind of thing happen? Yeah. And so those are the beautiful mysteries that can happen in church, I think, that mm. the unexpected moments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like your use of the word celebration. And uh, that was always ingrained in us, that it was a celebration of your faith. But, you know, the question I've been dying to ask you, Diana, is how would you define your relationship with Jesus? Well, um, one of the things that 
happened in this book is, you know, like I said, I talk about these six different images, friend, teacher, savior, Lord, mm-hmm. way, and presence. And I talk about them in roughly um, chronological order in my own life. And when I got all finished uh, with the project and I thought that people would eventually ask me this question, you know, how do I feel about Jesus now? I think I mostly have gone back to the very first one Mm -hmm. and thought about the power of Jesus as friend, which is a beautiful image that is often seen as being too juvenile, you know, for serious theology. And in fact, in, the, um, in your book, you talk about your experience in seeing a, was it a drawing of Jesus surrounded by children, and it was defined as Jesus and his friends, and you felt, oh, Jesus is my friend. Yeah, that's one of the very first memories in the book, and I work off a lot of these memories that I have of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a Sunday school classroom. I must have been, and I was born and raised, uh, baptized in the Methodist church. So, so here I was, I was probably three years old, uh, sitting, and I remember sitting on the carpet in a, in a circle with other little kids in the Sunday school room in the basement of the church. And the teacher, Miss Jean, don't remember her name, um, was telling us a story about how Jesus welcomed little children. And she held up a picture, and the picture was Jesus surrounded by all these little kids. And in the picture, there was a girl who, I don't know, I thought she looked like me. Hmm. Um, she was blonde haired and blue eyed, you know, just like all little girls in ancient Israel. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know that's a whole other topic. (laughs) That's right. And, uh, she had her head laying on Jesus shoulder. And so I knew, you know, she was Jesus friend and Mm. Jesus was her friend. And so that image, uh, really becomes the first way you know, that I ever really understood Jesus, the friend of little children. And, um, you know, now um, I turned 62 a couple of weeks ago and, um, it's, it, it, it's one of those moments when I've just kind of gone back to the very beginning and, 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 um, understand friendship so much more richly than I did, obviously when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea that somehow Jesus is a faithful friend, companion. And in the chapter, I said that uh, a pretty well-known psychologist defined uh, friendship for children as a, every child knows that a friend is someone you can trust and someone you can play with. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really kind of where it is for me and Jesus, you know. <laughs> all, all, all through all through all these decades, I found I found Jesus, even when I didn't find a church this way, or theology this way, or even people within the church this way. I've always found Jesus trustworthy. Yeah. And hey, I I, I think that I like playing with Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. I I love to laugh, joy, beauty, all those things. You know, Jesus is a, a really good friend to play with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 God, that's so important, especially as a child, because sometimes being a child can be very, very lonely, and you don't always have the friends that you want. And uh, that's extraordinarily comforting. I, I find that a very uh, positive and uplifting interpretation of a relationship with Jesus. I think if Jesus was defined in our lives more along those lines, I, I think there would be a lot more... Uh, happy people in the world, but I think there would be a lot more fulfilled people in the world. Yeah, and 
I think it made a lot of sense during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, God, but yeah. all, all, the, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, Jesus kind of reemerges as as friend when I really I can't see any of my friends, you know, other than by Zoom. You know, frankly, my invisible friend Jesus was more comforting than my Zoom friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so, um, so I think that that was part of it. But there was, you know, there, Bob, it's really interesting because there's this other piece, and I hadn't thought about it until just the last two weeks as the book has, you know, come out, and I've been on a number of podcasts with with folks. There's this whole sort of um, uh, group of podcasters, and I call them the Theo Bros. <laughs> they're most they're mostly young younger men, thirty something that love talking about theology and lots of them were uh, evangelicals at one time. You know, Mm -hmm. they grew up Southern Baptist or some non-denominational church or what have you. And um, as I've been chatting with them, they're really taken, and it comes right out of what you were just saying, they're really taken by the images of friend and teacher uh, for Jesus. And one of them, I finally just said, why is that so compelling for you? And and the young man said, because I never learned it in church. Because yeah. the first thing, the first thing I ever learned in church about Jesus is that Jesus was going to judge me after I died, and that I had to believe in Him and the de- His death in the cross in order to be saved, or else I was going to go to hell. He said that's my first memory of Jesus. Wow, it seems like there's so much there's so much more to it, and. Uh... That the interpretation of this wrathful Jesus is uh, just seems like it's so toxic. And if uh, that could somehow be eliminated, it seems like we'd all be a lot better off uh, coexisting with, uh, you know, with our faith. And for this fellow, you know, and a number of these podcasters that I've talked to, they've, you know, they've certainly rejected that that idea of Jesus and they're searching, you know, for some other different way of being Christian. But when I, when I heard his story, the first thing that kind of flashed through my mind was not only the how sad part, but it was also like, well, there it is. Mm-hmm. That's the trajectory from a kind of Sunday school classroom that would teach you about a violent God who wants to send you to hell yeah. to the guy with the Jesus save sign standing next to the news on the Capitol lawn <laughs> on January 6th. And so what happens in that Sunday school classroom, at least for a uh, you know, in American history for a long time, those Sunday school classrooms have sort of projected themselves out into the larger field of, of culture and politics. Mm-hmm. And if you think of Jesus as friend, like I do, you come up with a whole different political sort of set of beliefs in your life. Oh, yeah. But if you think about Jesus the way that that kid, that young man was trained to do as a kid, well, his Jesus might wind up as a white supremacist, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting to take the government apart. So yeah. there's political consequences to these as well as these personal kinds of longings that we have too. Yeah, it could really set off someone on the wrong trajectory in terms of how they interpret their faith and incorporate it into their lives. I mean, here's something I don't mention publicly a whole lot. When I was in fifth grade, I was bound and determined to become a Catholic priest. I mean, I could say the entire Mass, mostly from memory. I even had all the gear, too, in my basement. In fact, I practiced with some of my friends from school. But all of that ended as soon as the dogma seemed like it was a means to divide and reject certain things. Uh, As we said before, condoms, masturbation, my gay friends being ostracized, and so on. But you know what? Out of that, 
even after I abandoned Catholicism, I still admire Jesus and his life. Uh, do you find that there are a lot of people like me who you encounter who have similar stories where religion disappears, but Jesus continues to persevere in their lives? Yes. I have lots of personal personal friendships with, with people who have similar kinds of stories. But I, when you said you wanted to be a priest, my, my mouth just like, fell open and <laughs> it's absolutely 100 percent true yep, yep oh my gosh Bob, that's amazing so i don't hear quite so many stories about people who thought that they might be priests <laughs> winding up completely in the different different location but uh you know we all have we all have a journey that we have to take mm-hmm. well it was it was and, kind uh, of it was kind of my good. way of of becoming steeped in everything that I was learning both in school and in mass uh, as a way to get inside of it. You know, and I kind of, in my adult life, looking back, you know what I kind of compare it to? I kind of compare it to cosplay or like Civil War reenacting. <laughs> where it is, I mean, we all laugh at those things. We laugh at the Star Trek conventions and we laugh at the Civil War reenactments. Oh, look at those guys playing dress them up. But I think one of the reasons they do that is because they want to gain an extra insight into what it is they're learning about, whether it's history or science fiction, or in this case, religion, uh, Catholicism. And I think one of my motivations was to get inside, to, to worm my way into what was being taught and try to figure out what it was like to interpret all of it from the perspective of being uh, the teacher uh, during the sermon, the teacher in the pulpit, uh, d- delivering the homily and and consecrating the mass and so on. That's I think that was ultimately my motivation. And once I I think I figured that all out, that's when I decided, okay, I don't need to do that now. <laughs> but Jesus, Jesus persevered. That is absolutely true. That's right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I laugh at your story, but I really shouldn't have because I tell a story and you know the first. <laughs> first chapter of my book about how I rescued the baby Jesus from the manger scene because I was worried that he was sleeping outside in the cold and put him in my, (laughs) I put him in my Barbie doll. Yes. I remember reading that. Yes. I love that story. I used to do horrible things like that and things that I meant well with, but my mom would explain to me, Bob, that's sacrilegious. You shouldn't do that. (laughs) Oh, and then you figure out later on that, I don't know, very few things I think are outright sacrilegious. So maybe, <laughs> right. maybe holding up a Jesus save sign next to a noose. So that's sacrilegious. <laughs> yeah, really that is absolutely sacrilegious, yes. But I don't think putting putting poor Jesus in the Barbie house so that he was warm uh, would, would count. As, as no, not not at all. That is, see, to me, in a in a fun kind of childlike way, that's a positive interpretation of what Jesus was actually teaching. He is, he's outside, he's freezing cold, bring him inside, help him, give him a warm place to stay. That's what Jesus wanted us to do with our our fellow humans. And uh, I think more and more people actually rescued their Jesus from their nativity scene and brought him inside and kept him warm. They would learn, I think, a more valuable lesson. I guess I've been trying to free Jesus my entire life. (laughs) See, there you go. That's exactly perfect. The book, of course, is called Freeing Jesus. It's on sale now, available everywhere you buy your books. Uh, I got a link in the description at bobseska.com. How can people follow you on social media, Diana? I'm on Twitter where I talk about religion, politics, poetry, all kinds of great stuff. Um, and then uh, my website, dianabutlerbass.com. 
And I do have a weekly newsletter called The Cottage, which you can get through signing up on Substack or at my website. Oh, that's great. That's great. And of course, you on social media, you tolerate all of my potty mouth tweets and (laughs) my obnoxiousness. Every time I'm with John, he apologizes for <laughs> swearing in front of me. And it's like, oh, for pity sake, John, I'm 62 years old. You don't think I've ever heard all of that before? You know, it's like, really. And I think sometime when I said damn or shit or something on his, <laughs> on his show, he was like, oh, my gosh, you're not supposed to say words like that. <laughs> See, Diana, you and I need to form the John Fuglesang fan club if it doesn't already exist. Because, man, that guy is a national treasure. And I mean that with all sincerity, 100%. Well, he might be uh, one of the world's best evangelists right now, but That's I right. think that your your sermon a minute ago might put you in the list of best preachers in the <laughs> United States. <laughs> okay. Well, I thank you for that. That is that is a very special compliment. I'll take that. I'll take that absolutely. Uh, Diana, it was such an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to have you back on, and good luck with the book. Thanks, John. It's great to talk to you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, John, Bob. <laughs> hey, that's okay. I'll be Fugel saying any day of the week. I, would... I do know who I'm talking to. <laughs> take it and easy. Bob, it has been wonderful. Thanks for sharing about your spiritual journey. I loved it. Oh, uh, you bet. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.